presented by the Common Sense Institute. Welcome to Common Sense Digest, the podcast that seeks to inject a little common sense into Colorado's policy discussion. Here's your host, Earl Wright. Welcome to Common Sense Digest podcast. My name is Earl Wright, and I am the chairman of the board of the Common Sense Institute. Thank you for joining us today. Today's guests include fellow CSI board member and head of Colorado Bankers Association, Don Childers, and former Colorado Secretary of State, Mesa County legislator, and longtime Gallagher reform advocate, Bernie Busher. Bernie, let's let's start with you and today's program. We're going to recap the 2020 legislative session here for business. And Bernie, I must say, every time I've ever met with you, I walked away in awe of the deep history of this state and particularly the legislative side and what's been going on. And and as I said to one of my colleagues, you know, this guy's a sage, so let's make certain we have a chance <laughs> to have a conversation with him. Bernie, as a former legislator, I'd like to start with you first. In January, there certainly wasn't anyone who could have predicted that the legislative session would be completed in mid-June after a two-and-a-half-month hiatus caused by the global pandemic. But we are an adjustable lot, and we've made it through, but with some interesting outcomes. There are some expectations given to the public, especially related to the budget, that the legislature would take on when they resumed. How do you view the results of the 2020 session? You know, that is, uh, that's a great session question. Uh, Earl, the, um, uh, you're, you're right. I, I kind of view this through the lens of the budget. I spent four years in the legislature and somehow ended up spending all four of those years on the, on the budget. I was fortunate. They were times when we had revenues, but I've also seen time and time again when the legislature has to make cuts and how difficult that is. I think the biggest accomplishment of this legislature is actually getting a budget put together. It was very, very painful. Uh, I talked to a number of the members of the committee making cuts to higher ed, big cuts to higher ed, making cuts to nearly every department, making cuts to our funding for K-12. It is just an unpleasant, difficult, hard thing to do. And the fact that they got it done is a testament to their hard work. I know that today the Budget Committee is getting the newest projections on revenues for uh, this year and next year. And um, it looks like the cuts were adequate. Uh, I've only had a few minutes to look at the documents that were introduced this morning. But it looks like the cuts were adequate, and we may actually have some good surprises coming to us in budget adjustments down the road. Well, uh, Bernie, I'm not, not going to let you off the hook with your answer, but I want to go to Don <laughs> next. Don, uh, same question for you. Were there any surprises uh, from your perspective? Well, yeah, and I want to start by echoing what Bernie said. I think the legislature did the difficult in dealing with the uh, budget but uh, I don't give them uh, such good marks in terms of other things they did in the last uh, couple of weeks of the session. Uh, they started out when they returned from COVID by providing assurances that they would only address the budget and school finance. And the results are very inconsistent with that. Um, I've worked in the Colorado Capitol a long time and uh, I'm used to partisan clashes but nothing like the anti-business agenda that I saw pursued this year. And there were two major outcomes that were inconsistent with those statements by leadership of doing only budget and uh, school finance. And that is that uh, 
the uh, process actually minimized input into the legislature, which to me is a disappointment and an embarrassment. Uh, the legislature discouraged the presence of interest groups, lobbyists due to COVID and remote testimony was not facilitated. Uh, they, in essence, told a lot of the public to stay away from the Capitol. And then uh, the worst part was that a schedule system was used to basically preclude a lot of input where complex bills were introduced late at night and the next morning you had a hearing and votes and uh, that leaves people uh, no time to analyze or prepare to make good comments for rational decisions. They also rushed to adjourn with days left that they could have stayed in session and spread out their decision making. So I'm disappointed with that. They also uh, used a lot of bills beyond the budget and school finance and I acknowledge up front that uh, government has huge uh, budget challenges at every level, and but it would also say that business has those challenges too, as do individual consumers, and that business and the tax revenue that it produces was shut down without warning, just like everybody else. But the reality is that the faster we get business back to a good, strong economy, the faster we can return to those businesses paying taxes, thus restoring state and local government revenue, and the faster that the unemployed can get back to work and heal their own financial difficulties. We don't have a comprehensive financial assessment of those bills in the last days of the legislature, but that's being worked on. I do know that uh, the Common Sense Institute has done a partial assessment that I think was really received very well by the business community. And it looked at a couple of bills in the legislature and a couple of ballot initiatives and came up with a price tag, a partial price tag for that legislation of $4.1 billion. And by context, the state deficit this year is roughly $3 billion. These new taxes in our costs and taxes amount to $4.1 billion. So in essence, we've got a, an effort where this was not about covering the deficit necessarily, but about raising taxes. And these are permanent increases. These are not temporary ones during the crisis. Uh, another way to think about this is the state general fund is 12 billion. So collectively, these initiatives are a 33% increase in state revenues and on a permanent basis. So that gives a little context to that. But the bottom line is this unprecedented economic uh, shock has serious consequences from permanently raising these taxes and other business expenses. And I don't think that's good for the businesses or the employees or hope to be employees that are currently unemployed trying to get back on their feet. Now, I could go through a number of specific bills I don't know if that's uh, worthwhile. You know, there were bills on uh, sick leave, on whistleblowers, and many other topics. But let me focus on one, which is House Bill 1420, which was a pretty sweeping tax bill. The intent was to raise funds for K-12, and admittedly, there is a gap there. Uh, we all sympathize. But uh, 1420 was focused on eliminating the tax cuts that were provided in the CARES Act at the federal level, which was the response to the COVID crisis. And it also was trying to eliminate tax cuts 
that were adopted in 2017 that had stimulated our economy. So with all that happening, it was, uh, and in a very compact time frame, it was very difficult for business to get their voice known. And in the end, uh, I think largely due to a veto threat from Governor Polis, the total uh, bill from that legislation was reduced from 408 million down to 188 million. So that was a significant uh, decrease in the negative impact of that. And uh, I'd make one other note, and that is that throughout the uh, consideration of that, the proponents characterize this as only impacting the wealthy and big business. But in reality, it hurt all employers and therefore all employees. You asked if there were surprises. Uh, I guess just that uh, uh, the legislators took advantage of an unprecedented health crisis to push through controversial bills with minimal public input. And uh, that's hard enough to get good public policy in the normal process, much less under these circumstances. Uh, I would end on a uh, plus note, and that is that I'm really looking forward to the Common Sense Institute's next study that I think was released this morning about the huge increase in fees, which aren't constrained by Tabor over the last decade or two. I hope that gives some insight to you, Earl. It does. And, and uh, I, I, I must say that uh, even though you tried to end on a high note, there was so much in the way of uh, other things for us to consider. Uh, Bernie, I, I have to come back and ask you as a business person, and you certainly have a lot of experience in free enterprise. How does a legislator think about uh, doing something as far as crisis legislation uh, and what needs to be done to solve something that's an immediate problem versus putting something on the books that's permanent and maybe uh, ends up being a little bit more trying for the for the uh, uh, taxpayer going forward than maybe anticipated. For example, Don mentioned uh, much of what is being talked about here falls within a you know, category of raising $4.2 billion, and all of it would be permanent. Uh, when, in fact, we had a $3 billion deficit, and we would hope that the economy will come back to, and recover that $3 billion deficit going forward. So tell us about the legislative process, if you could, a little bit about when you're there and uh, uh, why it is that we don't look at it from a, hey, we've got a problem right now and let's do what we can right now and then let's get back to business later on after we solve this problem, which is temporary. Earl, thank you for that. I, uh, you know, I, I, I need to kind of put a warning out there. My experience in the legislature is 15 years ago. Um, <laughs> I, all of us old guys say, yeah, right. It, uh, it was so much better then, right, Don? <laughs> yes, it um, was. But I think in many ways it was. One of the things that has frustrated me about the makeup of the, the legislature, the way it's happened, is that we are getting more safe seats. Uh, and I, I don't mean to divert from your question, but um, I spent the last four years until a year ago working on what became YMZ, redistricting reform. And the citizens embraced that strongly. One of the things that we were saying to people is that when you've got too many safe seats. The impetus towards compromise, listening to everyone in your district, uh, is diminished. And that makes for a, frankly, just a worse legislature. And um, I, I hate it when compromise becomes a bad word, when consensus building is not the norm. And um, 
that has really been where my emphasis and my my head has been for the last several years. Bernie, I'm I'm going to interrupt you because it seems to me that you and 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 Don are really saying the same thing. You're not saying it quite as clearly as Don said. What you're suggesting is what we have in place results in poor legislation. Is that a fair sense <laughs> of, of yeah, yeah. kind of where you're going through comments? Well, well, partly. One of the things I said to myself over and over when I was running a business was every system is perfectly designed to create the results that it consistently creates. Uh, you know, it's easy for us to be upset at people or individuals, but really it's the systems that we've allowed to create. And that's why uh, electoral reform, I think, is so important, why some of the other issues are so important. We need to create systems that result in open meetings, open records, compromise, and consensus building. Okay, then let me ask both of you as a follow-up before we move on to another topic. What can we do in light of what's occurred to hopefully correct at best or maybe modify at worst some of what you talked about, Don? And and Bernie, if you would uh, also chime in, uh, I'd appreciate it. Don? I, I completely agree with Bernie about the institutional reforms, and uh, hopefully the redistricting that was adopted will make a significant impact over time. And I have to agree with Bernie about the drift of the legislature over decades where there used to be, despite some political differences, the ability to compromise and work out uh, good agreements in the middle. And that is very difficult to do anymore and uh, is rare, quite honestly. And you see in an environment like this where, uh, Legislators feel like they need to perform. I mean, I'm not saying put on a theatrical, but uh, to uh, accomplish something. And so they rush things and they uh, tend to think that uh, their way is the only way. And uh, we end up with things like this. And quite honestly, I've seen both parties abuse that uh, system. So this isn't uh, a partisan comment. So I do have to agree with Bernie that it's uh, a rather baked in institutional All I know to do, Earl, to answer your question is to hope that uh, the redistricting stuff, which will take a number of years to play out, will make an impact over time. Are you just saying what has occurred this year is a bitter pill and we just have to swallow it? Is that what both of you are saying? And there's nothing that we and the public can do? So far, there are. Um, I'm going to let Bernie Bernie start with that. Then, Don, I want you to answer, too, please. It's a hard question. And I think... As individual voters, we've got a responsibility to try to figure out how do we how do we get back to the center, right? How do so we? You're how saying do we this year is just a bitter pill. The the laws that have been passed. There's an act, you know, eighty SB twenty two fifteen, new enterprise to collect new fees to partially fund the state reinsurance program, one hundred and forty one billion dollars cost. Uh, another active bill, HB twenty fourteen twenty which you'd already talked about, $408 billion, that's active. And then we've got the, so you're talking about these are just bitter pills. We can't do anything about them right now. We can only do it by going to the ballot box. Is that what you're saying, Bernie? Well, you know, I hate I hate it to be that black and white. I think we've seen through the years when the legislature passes a bill that proves to be a mistake, they've had some ability to repeal it and go backwards. But I, I, again, I, I go back to the system creates the results 
that the system is designed to create. And we've got to work on uh, electing moderates, getting folks into the legislature that uh, sometimes can stand up to their own party, that listen to all of the members of their district and not just uh, their individual party. Got it. Don, would you like to, to answer Yeah, I'll just uh, volunteer it? that I really look forward to the results of CSI study released today about the uh, increase in fees uh, that uh, Tabor hasn't been able to control compared to those uh, tax uh, matters that Tabor has controlled because I've seen a preliminary look at that and there's been a dramatic increase. I do think factual information like that helps convince the public that, wait a minute, uh, uh, are we playing a shell game here? And that's a question, not a, a statement, but it's the right kind of debate for our society to have. I'd also say there's a possibility of litigation over some of these. Uh, you know, uh, as an example, uh, the governor through executive order permitted electronic signature gathering for ballot initiatives, another concern of ours. There was litigation against that, and that has now been appealed to the Supreme Court, and we'll be getting a decision soon. But let's not forget that the courts are a way to uh, address this. So uh, there are some other avenues, but they do take time. Okay, I hear both of you saying that we can't go, we have to be reactive, and we can't go to sleep with the switch, particularly the ballot box. Got it. Hey, let's move on to the Gallagher reform for a second. Another chance for us to hopefully do what is right for the state. And boy, Bernie, you have been right on the edge of trying to help us as a state understand this issue. It's one major issue to come out of the session is the referral preferred measure that will be on the November ballot. And that's the Gallagher amendment and how we're going to repeal that from the state's constitution. While you and others have long advocated for the need to reform Gallagher, this is seemingly driven by the the havoc of the current pandemic. And let's hope we don't come out with the same results we did in the current legislative session with regards to, I guess, under assessment of what the real opportunity is here to make a a correction. Early projections have indicated that under the property tax formula established for Gallagher next year, there would be a need to read additional property tax assessment reduction that would cost schools around Colorado nearly a half billion dollars, not to mention the impact on other local taxing districts such as water and fire. And we all know that's a big issue. Okay, Bernie, what is your response uh, to see this ballot measure move forward? And you have been engaged in such a positive way in resolving this issue. Thank you, Earl. I, um, I've been working on Gallagher for a very, very long time. And folks worked on it well before I did. Um, when the vote was completed on a Friday of last week and it was referred to the voters for this fall, the first call I made was to Norma Anderson because, <laughs> and I see Don smiling. Norma tried to do this over 20 years ago. And I'm delighted that we got this far, that we got it referred to the voters. The impacts of Gallagher in the first years were, were modest, but it's kind of this rule of big numbers thing that you see in statistics. It gets worse every two years. The legislature, I think, has gotten increasingly knowledgeable about the impacts of Gallagher. There was an interim committee a year ago that met on this. I made some proposals to that committee. One of the things that came out of that was a pure referral. The organization, uh, Building a Better Colorado, 
has been uh, meeting around the state for the last year. The consensus of the folks that attended their meetings was repealing Gallagher outright is the best solution. And that's what's on the ballot. So uh, the citizens will have a, a chance to vote on that in November. And uh, I'm delighted. Okay. Gallagher is repealed. So what happens? Let, let me start out by explaining a little bit about uh, how property taxes in Colorado work and how Gallagher works. Property taxes are the result of a formula. The valuation of a piece of property times the assessment rate times the mill levy in that district equals the amount of tax generated. Gallagher passed some 30 plus years ago, decided that the ratio of assessments between residential property and all other property should forever be 45-55. And it keeps that ratio intact by reducing the residential assessment rate. So over the years, the residential assessment rate has dropped from 21% to uh, 7.15%, one-third of what it used to be. That also means... So property taxes for my house, in effect, over that period of time, have gone down. They have gone down. That's correct. Um, so why should I be worried about that? The commercial rate at 29% has stayed the same. So back in the beginning, the assessment on commercial property was about the same as residential. Today, it is four times what it is for residential. And if the next adjustment goes into place, it'll be five times. Now, the impact of this has traditionally been more intense in rural areas. Imagine, for example, a rural ambulance district that gets almost all of its revenues from property taxes. When that residential rate drops by 10 or 15%, it is badly impacted. Uh, some of them are, are really threatened with closing their doors because they can't afford to provide the services. The same thing because for, they have less commercial property and more residential property, they end up having less in the way of taxes. Is that your? That's exactly right. Um, well, Don, the, if that's the case, can you give us a good example? Can you give us a little bit more input on you know what other ramifications happens with Gallagher that are unintended? I'm certainly not the expert that uh, Bernie is on uh, Gallagher, but uh, this has been a slowly building pressure cooker, and uh, it will explode at some point if and cause a lot of damage if we don't find a way to relieve it. And uh, I think a place to start is with the repeal of Gallagher, because there are all sorts of consequences. And as Bernie said, it's not just K-12 funding, which is largely property tax-based, but fire protection districts and ambulance districts and all sorts of other things are greatly impacted. I mean, we've had scenarios where uh, fire districts have had to sell fire trucks uh, because they did not have the revenue to continue operations. So with the elimination of it, if that comes about, I think then the legislature will have to start making some really hard decisions. And I find it interesting that there was broad support among Democrats for this, putting this measure on the ballot, despite the fact that this, in the longer run, will produce some higher costs for homeowners. I hope that was responsive to your question. It was, but it seems to me, uh, uh, the examples, uh, Bernie, that the two of you have come up with is that 
Um, I, I can't believe that Denver is selling fire trucks to to fund their their fire department. So is there some kind of a bifurcation within the community that there's a haves and have nots that have been developed uh, in our state that were unintended? There are a lot of unintended consequences of Gallagher and, and it is complex. The thing that's different this year is in the arcanery of uh, school finance. Historically, when the revenues drop down in a school district because of a lower assessment rate, the state was obligated to backfill. The state is still obligated technically to backfill. And that's why the funding for schools, which used to be 33% state and 67% local, now is about 32% local and 68% state. This year, because of the huge problems that the state budget has, the state's not able to backfill. It doesn't have the money. And so we are looking at a decrease in funding for our school districts of 400, maybe $500 million across the state. And that has created a new sense of urgency for dealing with uh, this formula that we've put into our constitution. So one of the unintended consequences is you're telling me that, that uh, Gallagher with COVID-19 has, as I previously mentioned, been the significant contributor to a half billion dollars being diverted out of our educational budget for the state. Am I hearing you correctly? Yes. Uh, that, that, that's a little bit of a simplification. It, it, you know, it's the whole way that our school finance and property taxes have been structured. But at the heart of many of the problems is the Gallagher Amendment. All right, Don. You're not going to get off the hook here, my friend. What's <laughs> the alternative? I guess the alternative is going back to legislative decision-making. And although Tabor stripped our governing bodies of taxation rights, this kind of inches up on impacting citizens financially, uh, somewhat like uh, taxation. But this is an area where until we figure out a better system, the legislature is going to have to deal with this and figure out how to do this. And I think that is uh, the only recourse or only alternative we have for the uh, short run, and I haven't really thought out one in the long run. I would want to just end on another note about this isn't the only issue we need to be concerned about that will be on the ballot. There is a huge tax increase that uh, will likely be on the ballot that is not there yet, and a proposal for expanded paid family medical leave, just to name two of them, that uh, voters will also need to keep their eye on. I want to go back to a common theme that the two of you had and which leaves me in a bit of a conundrum. The common theme at the beginning was that the process and the legislation, the legislative process we experienced this year wasn't a very satisfactory one. And I'm talking about process. I'm not talking about outcome. And yet we're saying that the resolution for Gallagher is going to go back to the legislature. I guess my closing question to the two of you is if the process doesn't work, hasn't worked very well this year, with regards to how we resolved our budget deficit. What makes you believe that we can go back to the legislature without a Gallagher in place and we're going to come up with something that gets the results of more uh, equitable educational dollars being distributed and monies available for the fire districts and water districts in rural Colorado that are being impacted by Gallagher? 
How does the legislature, in your opinion, go to solve that, or is it just something that's going to be solved at the ballot box, and that's the only way we can do it? You know, let let me take a, a try at that. I think everyone who looks at this needs to recognize that Tabor remains in place. And because of Tabor, the legislature cannot go in and increase these assessment rates. There is a concern from some folks that the legislature will go in and start systematically lowering the assessment rates and thereby impact some of these situations. I'm not sure whether that'll happen, but the legislature can't go in and increase the rates. Well, that's that's an answer that makes me feel a bit more comfortable. Don, did you um, contribute? I'd be fairly quick in the response, and that is that the legislature may not be the ideal way to address this, but it is better than a formula baked into the Constitution, which is the way we've been operating and what has gotten us into this predicament. And by the way, it's not the only formula in our Constitution, (laughs) but uh, it's uh, one that we're addressing right now. I can't thank you both enough. I mean, it's not often that you have such seasoned experts and the topics that we're talking about with Don and Bernie. And thank you both for all that you do for the state of Colorado. We're lucky to have your leadership and your continual sage advice. Thank you. Thank you, Earl. Thank you for listening to the Common Sense Digest. For more on today's topic, as well as our research on the most pressing public policy issues facing Colorado, please visit commonsenseinstituteco.org. The preceding episode, along with all others, is available on podcatchers everywhere or on our website under the podcast tab. Our technical producer is John Ekstrom and Deft Communications. This has been a production of the Common Sense Institute.